It's great to look back, to reflect, to remember the great times and the difficult ones. In the last 10 years, hundreds of lives have been changed. Families have been restored, marriages have been mended, and forgiveness. Forgiveness has been granted. Chains have been broken and true freedom has been experienced. As we remember, we reflect on the loss of those we loved, the joys and the sorrow. We've seen people come and go. Some have lost their way, others have drifted. And all the while, many of us have forgotten why we're here, why we exist, what the Lord requires of us. Reflecting gives us a chance to pause and consider all the Lord has done, all He wants to do. We can learn from our past, remind ourselves of our commitments, and to remember the words of Jesus. On this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What's up, gang? Hey, uh, we want to welcome everyone that's joining us online as well as those hanging out with us on our Edgewood campus. And hey, just real quickly, in unity and one accord, can we just give the Lord a hand? Amen. I figure we're going to all be clapping and cheering for teams we won't remember uh, a year from now to the, later today. We might as well go ahead and clap and, and give praise to the king in which we should always remember. Um, hey, we're glad that you're here. If you're hanging out with us for the very first time, we're glad uh, that you're uh, taking the time to hang out with us this morning. My name is Brandon Bachel. I'll give you the great privilege of uh, being the pastor here. And I uh, just want to encourage your hearts today and remind you of God's word. And uh, as we do that, uh, I, I think just want to remind you um, that because we are worshipers of God and because we desire to live according to his truth, the word, um, hey, that means so many things for us. And uh, as we dive in today, I pray that your heart is encouraged. We want to go ahead and give you an, an advance warning. Your heart will probably be challenged as well. And uh, I pray that you would know that all of it is not only done out of love, but it is done with the idea that as we remember what it is the Lord has called us to, and what he desires for us as believers in Christ, I don't see any way around some of the things that we're going to share. But I think the challenge is, is that we come from places oftentimes um, kind of like the story I'm about to share. Uh, matter of fact, there were uh, three pastors gathering together several decades ago, and they were having some conversation in the local, converse, uh, the, uh, local coffee shop. And, and it was already a miracle that some of these pastors were getting together because they were all a part of kind of the major churches in their town. And they were talking about uh, something they had in common, which that year they had a, a very bad, bad uh, uh, bad uh, bat infestation. So there were lots of bats in communities. They were in homes, and but they had also made their dwellings in these three physical locations, these churches, and these pastors were struggling to know how to get rid of them. They tried all these different things and they were sitting down with coffee and one of the pastors goes, listen, he goes, I'm so frustrated by them. Uh, he goes, I actually grabbed my shotgun, my 12 gauge this week. He goes, I went in there and he goes, I blew up that attic. Um, he goes, it didn't work. Uh, they left for like an hour and they came back and he goes, and now we've got dry, drywall repair companies in trying to fix everything that I'd done. And another pastor goes, well, hey, we, we tried some other measures. He goes, we actually got a company to trap them. And he goes, and we, we hauled them off in trucks and we, we went 60 miles away and we let them go. And he said, and believe it or not, they beat us back to the building. And the third pastor goes, guys, 
almost kind of like in this, this gleeful arrogance in a way, he goes, we figured it out. We have no more bats. And like, what, what did you do? He goes, we caught every last one of them, baptized them, and we haven't seen them since. And I don't know about you, but that's kind of the church, isn't it? Like, it's like, hey, let's, let's tell them about Jesus. Let's baptize them. Let's make them members. And then we look up one day and like, we hadn't seen them in a decade. And, and that's really, I think, where the Church of America, in some ways, we can miss it. But as we read about the early church, and as we reflect, as we remember what the Lord has called the early church to do, uh, what we think that uh, we as followers of Christ should do. I just want you to read along with me in Acts chapter 2. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. But here's the deal. Uh, the Holy Spirit has come across uh, or onto um, a little over 100 believers there. And uh, one of those believers is a guy named Peter, uh, in which Jesus had promised that there would be a fulfillment of the Holy Spirit and that the church would be born and that Peter would be a major part of that. And even the gates of hell wouldn't prevail against this movement. Well, Peter uh, at Pentecost receives the Holy Spirit and he goes to preach it. In Acts chapter two, he is letting uh, a group of people just really have it. They, they thought that because of the way that these believers were acting, that they'd even had too much to drink. They're, they were making fun of them, mocking them like, oh, they're drunk on new wine. And uh, they're having kind of a, a little bit of a heyday, having fun with them. And Peter stands up and he just goes, hey, listen, let me tell you something. And he begins to proclaim to them the truth of who Jesus was, the Messiah, that he had been crucified, that he had been resurrected, uh, that they had seen it, that they had testified to it, they had heard his truth. And they began to just share the very guy that you put on the cross, the very guy who is from God, the Messiah. And what's interesting, after he just goes on this, this preaching uh, block uh, for a handful of minutes, it says that in verse 37, that they were amazed. Uh, and when we think about what their response was, I would say this, you see the church was born. And here's what I think a good working definition of the church is. If we're going to just kind of understand what it is that these people were about to respond to and, and what God had done there in the early church, I think it's this. A group of believers that were called out of darkness, okay? And so here's what the church is. We, they, called out of darkness, converted to Christ, conformed to the image of God, which is our Savior, they were committing to each other in community. And as they did that, you saw that they were communicating the truth of God's grace, his love, his mercy, his kindness, his benevolence to those who didn't know him. So here it is, the church of people, not a building, not a location, not a gathering where steeples are or weddings or funerals are performed, but a people of God called out of darkness, converted, conformed to the image of Christ, are compelling others to be like him as they live in community with one another. And what you would see is, is that that's what they were committed to. And as Peter shares this message, he's in essence encouraging every single person to be about the business of these things. And look what they do in verse 37. It says that in verse 37 and following, it says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter, to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and 
There were added that day about 3,000 souls, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. Now, if you've been here over the last decade, you've heard this text, you've read this text, but today I believe that there are five applications that should be true of every single one of us who would claim to know and follow Jesus. And so let's pray together and let's ask God to reveal those truths and then help us to examine whether or not we're living these things out in our own lives. Heavenly Father, I thank you for my friends that are gathered with me today. I thank you for your word. I thank you that your word is, is, is truth. And I thank you, Lord, that truth is not just found in your word, but found in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that as we share just your word today, Lord, that we would get a comprehensive view of what believers in Christ should look like according to your word. Lord, I pray that, that as we study your word, as we think about your word, that we would realize that if you are the center of all truth, then what we are sharing is from you and not from mere man. This isn't a, a conversation about us as mortals, but it's a conversation about us as following a supernatural and sovereign God who we claim, as many of us do in this room, that we have given allegiance and our alliance to you. So as ambassadors of Christ, as ministers of reconciliation, as people that have been called out of darkness, Lord, would you help us to be about the business of doing your business? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as we look right here is the response. Peter's given this message uh, in verse 37. It says, and when they heard this, meaning uh, the, the people that were uh, in the epicenter there in Jerusalem, as they were hearing the apostles and their teaching, as they heard this, they were cut to the heart. So much that they were cut to the heart that it was almost as if they were gathered together and they, they thought, God is talking to me. You ever been to a place where the message is like just so crystal clear that you felt like it was pointing right at you? Ever been there? Like he must have been watching me this week. Uh, he must have been in our house because the very thing he's talking about is the very thing we're dealing with in this moment. Well, it appears that as they're hearing Peter preach this message, that they were cut to the heart so much so convicted that they actually responded with these words to the rest of the apostles and to Peter. Brothers, what shall we do? What they heard cut them so deeply to the heart that they even were asking, hey, what's next for me? But here's what I want you to realize. The very first truth that you and I should see in all people who would proclaim Christ as king is they are continually broken by their sin. Now, when you think about broken by their sin, what I mean by that is not merely that you know you're a sinner. Because we've heard that all our lives. The question is not, do you know you're a sinner? Not, do you admit that you're a sinner? But do you admit that there is something inherently wrong with you in your flesh apart from God? And does that cause you to mourn? Does it cause you to be sorrowful or is sad? Because you know that without God, you are depraved. As Paul would say, you are a, a child of the devil. Like, do you know that? Do you even think about that? Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 7, verse 18. He says, I know that there is nothing good that dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I know what is right to do, but I do not have the ability to carry it out. What the apostle Paul says is, I am the chief of all sinners. Now, the question is, is if you know that and have formulated that opinion in your mind, what do you respond to in that? Well, it seems that these people here in the early church were broken by their sin. So broken that... In fact, they probably could remember or even heed the words that the Messiah had, had even said himself earlier in his ministry. 
If you remember the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon in our Bible and that Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says these words in verses 3 and 4. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And when he says poor in spirit there, he's, he's saying, hey, blessed are those who are, are poor, who are destitute in their spirit, who realize that they are spiritually empty, that they are deprived, that there is nothing good in their lives unless there is a godly deposit from our heavenly father. These, these people who realize that they are poor in spirit, they are the ones who will find the kingdom of heaven. Jesus then says this, he says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Sometimes this passage right here, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted can be quoted at a funeral. Maybe as you're in tears over uh, some sorrow or some difficult times, somebody will say, hey, blessed are those who mourn. But listen, that is not what Jesus means at all in the context of this. What Jesus means is blessed are those who are broken over their sin. Blessed are those who look through their lives and they admit that there is nothing good in them apart from Jesus Christ. Blessed are those who realize when they look at the mirror that even though you convince yourself that you're really not that bad, you know, that there is something wrong with you and that you need God in your life. That's what God is trying to use Peter to convince these people of. Listen, it doesn't matter that you have Jewish traditions. It doesn't matter that you grew up under the teachings in the synagogue. It doesn't matter that you have portions of the Torah memorized. It doesn't matter that you can quote Moses. It doesn't matter that you understand what God did in the Exodus. What matters is, is that there's a Messiah who has come for you and he wants to call you out of your sin. He wants to lift you up, but it only happens when you realize that you need Need him. The problem with most of us is we think God needs us. But what we need is him. That's why you see Jesus say these words. It's why the half brother of Jesus, James, uh, says this in James chapter 4, verses 8 and following. He says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double minded. Look at verse 9. He says, Be wretched and mourn and weep. When's the last time that you were considering yourself as wretched, that you mourned and you, that you wept over your sin, that you realized that without God and his grace in your life, that you have nothing to offer? He says, hey, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And then he says this, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. See, the problem with the American church today is that there are very few brothers and sisters that are cut to the heart because of their sin problem. When's the last time that you've been cut to the heart for your sin? When's the last time that you looked at your family tree and you realized that your family tree is broken because of you? And not to blame others, not to, to, to divert the attention. When's the last time that you just settled in and you admitted, I'm the problem with my marriage? I was giving counsel to a couple this week, uh, cross seats, sitting together in the end. I said, hey, let me just encourage you with this one thing. The problem in your marriage is you. Don't even look to your right or left. It's you. You're the problem. Can I tell you that the problem in my marriage is me? When I'm not seeking after the Lord, when I'm not mourning over my sin daily. See, the challenge with America is this, is we realize that we're sinners and then we convince ourselves because we're sinners, we'll always be sinners. And so we just might as well keep on sinning. And every time we sin, we just should 
ask for forgiveness and just kind of move on, but we never really change anything. We never really see, seem to alter our direction. What we do in some ways convince ourselves the very opposite of what Paul is talking about to the church in Rome. In Rome chapter 6, verse 1, he goes, what, sin, what then shall we say to this? Should we continue to sin that grace would increase? And then he goes, by no means. We don't continue to sin because we're sinners. Because if that's the case, that means our heart has not been cut to the core. Matter of fact, look what happens. They go, hey, what do we do next? Look at Peter's response. He says to them in verse 38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. What he says, though, is he goes, hey, listen, when you're cut to the core and you realize that you're a sinner, you admit that. He goes, the the next step is to turn and believe in Christ, to put your trust in him. Every Christ follower that has in some ways said that they have trusted Christ, every single one of them turns from their sin and their fleshly desires at some point. Every Christ follower has to eventually do an about face. When, when you see the word repent, that's literally what it means. It means that you would do a 180. And then we think 360. We think, oh, we'll do a full circle, and then we're just kind of heading in the same direction we've been coming from. The only difference is we now live under God's grace. No, 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 that's not it. It's, a, it's an entirely different direction. What we have done is driven our lives in one direction, and God is saying, do an about face, and let's go my direction. Let's go my way uh, rather than your way. And it only happens when we turn from our sin and fleshly desires. That's why Paul encourages his buddy uh, Timothy, the, the, the younger son in the faith. And he says this in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. He's talking about being a useful vessel for the kingdom of God. And in verse 21, he says, if you're going to be a useful ki- uh, vessel, therefore, it, anyone who cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use. You'll be set apart as holy. He'll be useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. When? When you acknowledge and turn away from rebellion and sin. He goes, you can be useful to the king. And in verse 22, he says, So with that in mind, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Friends, that's why we gather. We gather for the purpose of looking each other in the eye and saying, hey, dude, you should really turn and run towards Jesus rather than continually in a pattern of rebellion running towards your sin. Friends, that's why you have shepherds and you have leaders and you have pastors is to equip each other to do the work of ministry. We only do the work of ministry when we're running to Christ more than we're running to our fleshly desires. That's why time and time again, regardless of who Paul is talking to, whether it's the church of Philippi or Colossians or Ephesians, he's continually telling them, even to the Galatians, do not gratify the desires of your your flesh, but walk in the spirit. That's why we have a reminder of that. Matter of fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes, and uh, that's the passage in Ephesians 2 where he's talking about being made alive in Christ. Well, look what he says in verse 12 through 14. He goes, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers of the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Here's what he's saying. He goes, you do not have to live in your sin anymore. He goes, you can now be free. 
You can walk in freedom. Just as Moses was called to bring his people um, by God's grace and with his help out of slavery and oppression, God is doing something similar for us in his son, Jesus Christ. The only difference is ours is a final and a total surrender of ourselves to God's will. And it is a promise of a future hope and a restoration. That if God begins to work in us, Philippians 1, verse 6, he will continue it until the day of Jesus Christ. But it only happens when we are cut to the heart and we turn and we follow Christ. Friends, how long have you been in church and you've been in a pattern of doing what you think you ought to do, which is probably a man-made tradition, but you know for a fact that you've not repented, done an about face, and surrendered all your will and your way to Jesus Christ. Friends, if that hasn't happened, man, what a great day for the beginning of that. What a great day of changing your family tree, not mustering something in your own strength, not tying up the bootstraps and going, you know what, I'm gonna walk myself towards freedom, but trusting Christ fully, surrendering to his will and way, dying to your own flesh. I think that's what Paul meant when he writes to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, where he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. This life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me, who died for me. That's what it looks like, dying, surrendering. And when you see that, you see the response. He goes, repent, be baptized, follow him. And hey, just a reminder, it's not just for you guys, it's for your family. It's for anyone who would do these things. Anyone who's cut to the core, anybody who repents, anybody can have the hope of our savior. But look what he says in verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and he continued to exhort them. And he says, save yourselves from this wicked, this crooked, this deprived generation. He goes, save yourselves, turn, do it about face. And here's what I want you to realize. Christ followers are set apart from the world. In the Old Testament, you would see that they were set apart originally in, uh, in Israel through circumcision. God goes, okay, I'm gonna move from circumcision to the circumcision of the heart. I'm gonna consecrate you. I'm going to, uh, eventually, I'm gonna set you apart as mine. You are gonna be holy. You're gonna be children of God, beloved. You're gonna be people who have put on compassion. You're gonna be people who are marked by something different. He goes, you are to be different, set apart. The, probably the most famous verse that we would know, and you've probably heard many times in your life, but Romans chapter 12, verses one and two. When you think about what Paul's writing to the church of Rome, he makes it so clear to us what a believer in Christ should be. He goes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you might discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul writes it this way to the church of Philippians, a fantastic passage in chapter two. He goes, do all things without grumbling and disputing. All things that you might be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I do not run in vain or labor in vain. He goes, you are to be set apart. Now, let me just give you my own experience where I'm struggling to be set apart. Man, I am coaching a, a group of fifth and sixth grade basketball uh, kids. Um, we're 0 and 5. Um, 
If you were to kind of put the statistics up, uh, we've been scored, uh, outscored like 200 to like 20 uh, in five games. Okay, It is all coaching, uh, no doubt. Uh, we got tons of great kids and talent on the team. I just don't know how to coach, which is fine. Uh, but here's the challenge for that. Um, how, how, do you, how do you coach in a day and age? How do you um, help kids apply really what it looks like to have godly character? And, and some of them don't know the Lord and others are trying to figure out what it looks like to them. And, and how do you do that in a world that tells kids that they're winners by a scoreboard? Now, listen, I don't, I don't want your parenting antics. I don't want all that. Listen, I, I know what parents, I know what matters to parents because you can see it pretty clearly. But what my question is, is how do you and I, being set apart, consecrated for the Lord, knowing that we live in a culture in a day and age where we are, have competing values, how do you communicate to kids that in many ways see themselves as losers? I'm not talking about just basketball now. I'm talking about life. I'm talking about even for you. How do you communicate these character values uh, to be set apart, to be consecrated, to be different? How do you communicate even to yourself when you realize that you're to be a shining light in the midst of a crooked and a depraved universe? That you're to be different. I mean, let me ask you a question. What if I were to go and to talk to one of your coworkers and they, they were convinced that Christ existed and they were convinced of a need for them, but then they said, but the reason that I don't come to Christ is because I work with them and they go to your church. Wouldn't that be challenging? Wouldn't that be challenging? Because in the New Testament, what you saw is something consecrated and set apart. And listen, here's how, here's how you're to be consecrated and set apart in a wicked, depraved universe. You lose graciously. And you win graciously. We huddle up our team and, and there's not a whole lot to say other than, hey guys, hey, smile. And, and we love you and you're doing a great job. But then we do this. Hey, here's what we're gonna do. Um, hey, before we leave tonight, you're going to go around and you're all going to pick up at least five pieces of trash. You're going to put them in the trash can. We're going to gather back together. We're going to go serve these people around us. And hey, then when we get back together, here's what you're going to do. You're going to look me in the eye and I'm going to look you in the eye and you're going to shake my hand and then you're going you're to shake this assistant coach's hand. And then here's, we're going to ask you a question. Are you mad at me? Did I yell at you too much during the game? Are you mad at me? 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 And we are going to settle accounts even with one another on our team. And here's why. Because in the heat of a moment when parents are yelling and referees are calling bad calls and everybody's frustrated because we're getting cheated, the reality is, is that we are to be different. And we are to keep short accounts with even those that are on our team or parents. And here's why I tell you this story. I tell you this story because I want to give you real-time understanding of what matters to you and what matters to me can oftentimes be the same thing. But when we view it through the lens of God's Word and His Scripture, it should take on a different form. What I mean by that is this. How many times have you been mad at your coach? We'll call him pastor. And instead of holding short accounts and going and going, hey, I feel like you wronged me here, you bail. You bail. Why do you bail? Because you're mad. Hey, do you think I never get frustrated? You never get mad? You don't think I'm ever? Look, at, I spend most of my week going around and, and, and having to seek forgiveness for short accounts to keep those short accounts. I, I, I do that. I get frustrated like you do, but I'm to be set apart. I'm to handle it differently. 
hey, let's just say that, that your coach is your boss. Do you treat him with respect? When's the last time you looked him in the eye and you were different? When's the last time that people saw the way you modeled your life in the public sector, wherever that was, and they go, there's something different about him. There's something different about her. Friends, that's what the New Testament believers were under persecution, under strife, under turmoil, under chaos. They were different. They were marked. The early church was known for their generosity. Even as they served people that were in jail, they didn't know. They were marked to be different. They were set apart. Friends, I see that to be true throughout all of the New Testament. You see people who were broken by their sin. They were cut to the core. They turned from their fleshly desires. They walked in God's truth and they were set apart from the world. Is that true of you? Now, here's your homework assignment. You ready? Lean in. You are to text a couple of your buddies. Some of them you were hanging out with last night. Some of them you're going to be hanging out with tonight. And tomorrow morning, after you've had all your, your good times, you are to call them or you're to text them and you are to ask your good buddies. I'm not talking about uh, the people that you're in journey group with or I'm, I'm not talking about just the people that you hang out with occasionally at church. I'm talking about the, those who know you apart from what you are here and you ask them this question. If there are two things that are really important to me, what are they? What are the two most important things in my life that I value that you see right now? What are they? And listen, if those two don't line up with this right here, then it means that we have work to do. And the reason why is because what you say you value and what you value can be different things. Don't be like a man, James 1, who looks in the mirror intently and forgets what he looks like. Don't be merely hears the word and so deceive yourselves. It's about doing what it says. Friends, that's a challenge, isn't it? It's a challenge for me. And so I pray that we would be set apart. Look at verse 41. Those who were set apart, though, it says, So those, they received his word and they were baptized. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. So here it is, they're cut to the heart, they repent, they move a different direction, no longer living according to their flesh, they live by the spirit, they're set apart from the world. You see a difference that's marked. Basically, I would say this way, they begin to bear fruit and in the fruitfulness that you see, one of those first steps that they take apparently is believer's baptism. One of the reasons that we talk about believer's baptism around here is because we see a precedent for that in scripture. Matter of fact, just um, a handful of chapters over in Acts chapter 18, you're gonna see... Uh, this great story in Acts chapter 18, verse 8, it says, Crispus, the, uh, Crispus, uh, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together also with his family, his entire household. And then it says, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and then were baptized. You see that time and time again, they believed and they were baptized. And the question is, is okay, why are we baptized? The reason we're baptized, first and foremost, is Christ commands it. Matthew chapter 28, 19 and 20. He tells us to be baptized. He also led by example in that. But the question is, is why? The reason that we're baptized is because it is a, a great reminder to everyone that we have been consecrated or set apart. Remember the idea of being set apart, being different? The, one of the great ways you do that is you, you show the world visually that I am new. That 2 Corinthians 5, 17 passage, the old is gone, the new has come. And as we, we declare that to others in our lifestyle, people begin to see that I've been marked differently. And the reason we're baptized is because it identifies us with Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. The old is gone and the new has come. 
It's one of the first steps for a believer in Christ. After they believed, they're baptized. Colossians 2.12 says this way, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised us from the dead. Paul writes to the church of Rome and he says in this way in Romans chapter six, verse three and four, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father, we too might walk in the newness of life. We baptize other people after they've come to believe in Christ because they are encouraging the world to see that there is something new about us. The very reason that I stood on an altar and committed myself to my wife before God and other witnesses that I would be in covenant relation with her, the reason I wear my ring as a reminder of that is the reason we're baptized, to show that there is a new life in Christ. God has taken the heart of stone, Ezekiel 36, and he's replaced it with a heart of flesh. He's changed us. We are marked. We are different. We are set apart. We are consecrated. Which begs the question, is that what New Testament believers should do? And I would say, Yes, and I think that's what we all should be doing as well. Cut to the core, repent, be set apart, follow in believer's baptism. That's what we do. That's what believers in Christ do. And as we do that, we yoke ourselves to something really important. We set ourselves apart from even the culture. And you might ask the question, well, uh, are you saying that baptism is a part of salvation? And I would say no. Ephesians 2 answers that question. Uh, salvation and baptism are, are not, to, those, those things are not synonymous to mean salvation. It means that you've believed in Christ, trusted in his work on the cross, his death, burial, resurrection, the crucifixion uh, that gave us freedom through bloodshed. And then we, we simply are a part of, of that act just as the same as this ring is a symbol. Matter of fact, let me just give you a quick incident that happened this last summer. We're on vacation. It's in the middle of COVID. We're kind of thankful to be on a secluded beach. There's nobody around, and we're hanging out in the water, and I'm tossing kids up in the air, and we're, it's kind of like after three months of like just utter isolation, you know, it's like you're out, and you're free, and you can see your kids being kids, and as I'm chunking people, my ring flies off my hand. It's in the middle of the ocean. My first response is, hey, everybody, stop what you're doing and look for it. Uh, my wife's like, hey, Brandon, that's not going to work. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. So after the initial shock uh, that I could see on my face, my kids are a little bit alarmed. They're like, hey, Dad, what's going on? And in my mind, I'm cheap. So I'm thinking, how much is it going to cost to replace that wedding ring? <laughs> they see something else, kind of this perplexed idea on my face. And, and they're like, they've got a different question. And here's what the question was. Dad, are you and Mom still married? And for like just a split second, because if, if you know me kind of behind like the scenes, I'm like, I, I got to play, go ahead and play into it. I'm like, oh no, we're not. <laughs> and I kind of play on that a little bit. My wife is like, Brandon, stop. Like, you know, she's just like, you're ridiculous. And um, which is true. But my kids are alarmed for just a moment. And, and, and the reason they're alarmed is because they didn't understand the covenant. And friends, I don't think a lot of us understand the covenant. The covenant is not marked by a ring. It's marked by two hearts coming together. Friends, that's the same that's true for us. The reason we need to be set apart is because we are yoking ourselves to Christ. And we are saying that because of his death, burial, and resurrection, we are to be different and we are to live differently and we are to be devoted to different things than what we were devoted to in the past, which is exactly what Peter is going to call them to. Look what he says. 
after he's called them to this, look what the historical narrative would tell us in verse 42. And they, meaning Christ followers, people that were a part of the way, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. And listen, I would love to unpack all of this for you today, but what I want you to realize is they were, they were devoted to two different things. They were devoted to God's word and his teaching. If you continue down in that passage, which we're not gonna read today, but we will next week, you'll see that they were devoted to God's word in two different areas. One, they would go to the synagogue uh, daily. They would still continue to hear uh, things from the temple courts. They were also devoted to one another individually. And it seems to be that they were encouraged, um, not just individually, but also in smaller groups and homes. You saw different framework for that. But here's what I would tell you is this, is that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, which is God's word, and also to fellowship, which is one another. And I would say that's gotta be true for us as well. If we've been set apart, we've been marked, we've been different, then we've gotta be set apart as well. And we've gotta be set apart for the same things that the early believers were set apart for, which is the teaching of God's word and also to one another. Now, next week, we're gonna talk about the to one another part, but let's just talk real quickly about God's word. Can I tell you the number one foundational thing we need to improve on here at Stone Point? is the commitment to God's word. And I'm not talking about here in the, this setting. We, for 10 years consistently, have, I think, taught the whole counsel of God's word from Genesis to Revelation. I think we've done a thorough job in trying to exhort, encourage, at times admonish one another. But what I would say is this, what we need more than anything is that our communities, our journey groups are centered on God's word. And more than that, go a step further, that you shepherd yourself better than what you expect your leaders to shepherd you. What we would say is this, if we are going to be God's people cut to the core in our lives, we have to be learning from God's word every single day. We would go a step further. It is your responsibility as a child of God's kingdom, as an ambassador of Christ to know his word, to write it on the tablet of your heart, to walk in his ways. That's what keeps you from being in the company and the companion of fools, as Proverbs would say. That's what keeps you from sitting in the seat of scoffers or standing in the seat of sinners, Psalm 1. It is to meditate on God's law day and night. Psalm 119, 105 goes, hey, what is it that's gonna keep a man pure? Isn't it when he lives and abides according to the word of God? Isn't it when we are allowing God's word to be a lamp into our feet, a light into our path? We need God's word more than anything. You might ask yourself, well, why? Well, here's the deal. Look what Paul writes to Timothy. He says this, but as for you, Continue in what you've learned and firmly believe, knowing that whom, from whom you've learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, the text, which are also able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then he says these words in verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And you see that the, the dedication to be uh, in God's word, it trains us. Hebrews chapter five, you see uh, that as we're trained at, in God's word as a benefit that, that we're, we're living lives that help us determine good from evil, to be set apart, to be transformed, the renewing of our mind, as Romans 12 told us. It corrects and reproves us. That's one of the things that God's word does. Why we gotta be in season, uh, ready in season, out of season to, to reprove, uh, correct, rebuke, exhort with sound teaching. It gives guidance and counsel. Psalm 119, 105, I just mentioned. It provides comfort. It gives assurance and peace. 
It declares God's salvation. That's all of just just a handful of things that God's word does. But here's the part that I want you to think about. If we are to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, which is God's word, and we are to do what it says, and we would say these are five things that we see in the framework of all believers in the early church, then we got to wrestle through this one other thing. We're going to unpack this more next week, but I want to leave you chewing on it. If we're going to devote ourselves to God's word, here we would say God's word is 100% true. We would say it's inerrant without a mixture of error. We would say that we build our entire life and our entire church body on this. Matter of fact, one of the reasons we have a class called Starting Point, which is kind of the foundational part of becoming a member at Stone Point, is because we must agree on the foundational framework of God's word. As we would say here, um, we believe it as God's truth. Meaning that if we are basing our lives on God's truth, it's helpful that we yoke ourselves to the same direction of God's truth. But here's the question that you need to wrestle with because there's this thing called relativism going on in our culture. Relativism is, is I can be what I wanna be, you can be what you wanna be, as long as we don't have competing views for one another. As long as you don't try to impart your values on me and I don't try to do my values on you, then we can just be what we are. We can kind of coexist in some sort of way and we can just be what we're gonna be. And there is no real truth. We just kind of get to decide truth for ourselves, which is kind of what we're seeing in the culture, that you can decide whether or not you're a male or a female. That's your choice as long as everybody stays out of it. Now, for us, that we would say, no, truth is found in the person of Jesus Christ and, and, and his word, we would go, no, no, Truth is we're creating the image of a holy God and we're to, to live according to his word. Listen, can I just tell you that this relativism thing is not just in our culture. Can I tell you also it's in the church? The reason it's in the church, I was talking to somebody not too long ago, and uh, they go, hey, Brandon, listen, I, I get what you're saying, man, but listen, the way that you interpret the word and I interpret the word is different. And kind of like start, just had this thought-provoking question in my mind. Okay, okay, that, that's fair. And then I started studying relativism a little bit. And as I studied relativism, I'm like, do we really get to say that? Matter of fact, just think about it. If Jesus is truth, he declares that in John chapter 14, verse six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If he is truth, and his word is the essence of truth, then the question is, is if we disagree, is one of us wrong? That's what I want you to think about. Because if one of us interprets the scripture as this is what New Testament believers do, and one of us interprets it as that's just the way you interpret it, then the question is, is are we ever going to head the right direction? Because until we all interpret it as the same thing, we're always going to have a, a mixture of challenges. And the reason why is because you don't get to tell me what I have to do because I read the Bible differently than you. And that's a real challenge, especially as it comes to devoting not only to his word, but to one another. Listen, here's what I would say. I gave you five things that I see, not just in Acts, the early church, in the historical framework there, but I see throughout the New Testament. I see those so strongly and I believe so strongly in them that I would say this, and it's bold language, that if you're not doing the things that are found in the New Testament scriptures, then you're an irregular believer. Because I believe wholeheartedly that those things have to be true for us. That if we're cut to the core, if we turn into an about face, we repent, we're set apart so strongly that other people recognize it. We follow in believer's baptism and then we yoke ourselves to God's teaching and to God's people. And if we're not yoked to those things, the question is, is what are we yoking ourselves to? And those are great questions to ask and ponder and consider. And that's why I'm asking you to remember 
what it is the Lord's called you to. See, this series is not just a reminder about what God called the early church to. It's what he's calling us to. And I believe that if we're going to be all that God has for us, we need to settle on what is it the Lord is calling us as believers to be about. And what is he calling us to? And what are non-negotiables in his word that you see in the biblical framework of the text, but also in the lives of those who love him? And I pray your heart's challenged. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, I thank you for our time together. I thank you for your text. I thank you, Lord, um, that you are calling us to live as devoted followers of Christ, ambassadors, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people with a job to do. We are a part of the family of God, which means we have responsibilities, not rights. It means that we have um, a part to play in this and we can only play the part in your local body if we find ourselves moving more towards you than the conformity in this world. And Lord, I get it. There are lots of people that are confused about not only the world and society we live in, but there's many people that are confused even about what your word says we should do. But Lord, would you help us to settle what it is that believers should do and how they should live and what they should be about? And so Lord, as we move and as we have our being, I pray that it would all be centered on you. We love you and we wanna be more like you. And so, Father, I pray that that's all that we would desire is to be all that you've called us to be and nothing less. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. If you'll stand, I want to leave you with more of what the word says. So after...